Welcome, everyone. This is Treks to Nowhere. A trek to nowhere isn't always about the where, but sometimes also about the when. For example, some of my favorite experiences at national parks are those where I chose to go during the quote-unquote off-season and see parts of those parks entirely on my own. I can also recall one year driving up to Niagara Falls on New Year's Eve and standing over the nearly frozen Niagara River at the stroke of midnight. There wasn't another soul around. Why would there be? Who wants to stand in the bitter cold of a polar vortex event in the literal middle of the night when there are warm New Year's celebrations happening at various watering holes just up the road? In January of 2018, I was presented with an opportunity to experience Colorado in a way that was completely foreign to me. You see, for as many times as I'd visited Colorado over the years to explore the mountains and trails or to work in an ice core laboratory at the U.S. Geological Survey, I had yet to enjoy the beautiful state during the deep winter months. Earlier in 2017, I've been having conversations with a fellow researcher about some possible new ice core sampling at the USGS laboratory outside of Denver. Her plan was to cut and prepare several new thin sections of ice samples from Antarctica in order to analyze the ice crystal properties, orientations, and fabric. Ice fabric is simply a fancy way of saying how the individual ice crystals are generally oriented within the entire bulk of the ice. Ice fabric, or bulk ice orientation as it's sometimes called, is influenced greatly by the stresses and overall deformation that the ice experiences. So, looking at how the fabric evolves through depth in an ice sheet can act as a proxy or indirect measure of how that ice has behaved throughout a particular period of time in the past. Perhaps you're wondering why ice might have flowed differently in the past. Well, this is ultimately what many scientists are trying to sort out, particularly in the climate-sensitive polar regions. Questions like, did the climate warm abruptly in the past? Did snow accumulation trends change? Did the ice flow direction or catchment divides change? These are all important and often interwoven scientific inquiries worth disentangling. What these lines of research questions ultimately led to for me was a trip to the National Science Foundation Ice Core facility for some collaborative ice core sampling. I was genuinely thrilled to be asked to be involved in this project, not just because I think the field site and related science questions are fascinating, but because I would also likely get to play in Colorado for what would be my first true winter. I think there was something also really special about being asked to collaborate on this project because it would be the first time that I'd been approached as an early career scientist specifically because of my expertise and skill set. In other words, it was the first time someone asked me to join a project because I had established myself as an expert with these types of analyses. After over seven years in graduate school and over five years working in both a research and academic setting, it felt quite validating to be approached by someone in such a capacity. As anyone that has worked through a dissertation will tell you, 
it often can feel like your area of research has become so specialized, so focused, that ultimately no one will ever care or actually be interested in any part of your research microcosm. We spent about two weeks working long hours in the freezing temperatures of the lab, but the resultant sampling and analyses ended up being incredibly successful. We were able to prepare over 15 discrete ice core samples, which will produce a wealth of valuable data for later analyses. Hopefully, these data will keep an eager graduate student busy and interested for months. In total, I only spent about 18 days on this trip, but it was enough time to adequately absorb a genuine Colorado experience. Now, with that said, the conditions in January in Denver and around the Front Range were incredibly mild. I was expecting much colder temperatures and impassable snowy trails, but both were just not the case. I ran along dirt trails in 60-degree weather and enjoyed evening runs around my rental condo in shorts and t-shirts. I'm not sure if it was an unseasonably warm January or if it was typical for that time of year, but either way, it seemed like I wasn't getting the authentic Colorado winter experience I had hoped for. Of course, the high peaks of the Front Range were certainly snowier than I was used to seeing in the summer months. Back in 2008, I through-hiked the Colorado Trail in June after similar lab work, and it was an abnormally high snow accumulation year. Seeing all the high mountain snow did bring back some interesting memories of post-holing my way over a few high and often precarious mountain passes during that hike. But even with that high mountain snow in 2008, temperatures were warm and the snow was typically only present in smaller patches and drifts. It didn't feel like winter. In spite of all the great science that took place at the ice core facility with my collaborator, the true capstone of my trip turned out to be a rather whimsical and somewhat unorthodox summit of one of Colorado's highest mountains. Summiting the 14,000-foot peaks of Colorado, aka the 14ers, is a very well-known and common endeavor, and one that is pursued by hundreds of people each year. There is much debate on how many official or independent 14er peaks there actually are, but by most accounts, there are generally 58 accepted peaks. Of these 58 peaks, there are certainly those that are more popular and more accessible, particularly those that are closer to the greater Denver area. Furthermore, it is fair to say that the least summited of these peaks, and by a large margin, is Culebra Peak at 14,053 feet. The reason for this is twofold. First, Culebra is one of the farthest 14ers to reach from most of the populated areas of Colorado as it sits near a remote part of the New Mexico border. But probably the biggest reason so many climbers elect to skip Culebra is that it sits on privately owned ranch land. This means to climb the peak legally, you must obtain permission from the ranch owners and more importantly, pay a substantial fee. Many people therefore opt to pass on summiting Calabra simply on principle. This is a rather contentious topic as many believe the 14er peaks should be accessible to all. As for me, well, I was willing to eat that permit fee in order to play by the rules, even if I might disagree with them. 
Now, before I continue, I think it's first important to establish a little bit of my personal history with the Colorado 14ers. Before this specific trip to Colorado, I had successfully completed 38 of the 58 total 14er peaks. The previous summer, I had actually tried, unsuccessfully, to sign up for a summit permit for Culebra, but unfortunately, by the time I inquired, all of the allowable permits had sold out for the season. I missed my opportunity and was worried I may never get a reasonable shot at hiking this remote peak. Now, of course, there are some that carry with them a certain level of ingenuity and cleverness that find alternate ways to summit Culebra by accessing it from a different direction on public land. However, all of these alternate routes require off-trail bushwhacking, over 25 miles of trekking, and are highly discouraged by most of the hiking and climbing community. The reason for this is because even if those routes are on public land, the summit itself is still private property. So this means even if you take an alternate and publicly accessible path to the summit, you are technically still trespassing on the summit if you don't have express permission from the ranch owners. And therefore, if trying to exploit these public routes to make it to the summit, if caught, hikers may jeopardize the entire permitting process for hikers that actually want to pay the permit fee and play by the rules. Personally, I wanted to play by the rules despite having to cough up the rather unpleasant permit fee of $150. After leaving Colorado that previous summer and having failed to gain a permit to hike Culebra, the thought of making the summit essentially left my mind. But at some point around Thanksgiving, I randomly recalled a conversation I had had with a fellow hiker a few years back. She told me that she was able to complete a winter ascent of Culebra and that the property owner does actually sometimes allow limited access during the winter months. Once I remembered this, I figured it certainly couldn't hurt to ask for my upcoming laboratory trip. So I sent a very brief email to the property owner asking if I could purchase a permit to summit Calabra in mid-January. After a few weeks, though, with no response, I had assumed that the answer was no. But then, just after the holidays and about a week before my trip was set to begin, I got an email from the property manager for the Calabra ranch owners telling me I would be given a permit if I paid the fee immediately. Apparently, there had been enough inquiries to Summit Calabra that particular weekend that the ranch owners were opening that specific and single day for hikers. I asked the ranch owner if he thought I would need any extreme winter gear like crampons or ice axes, and he said not at all and that the hike was actually pretty gentle. He did recommend a good pair of snowshoes, however. I decided to bring my micro spikes in warm weather gear to make sure my bases were all covered. So, just like that, I was signed up to climb Culebra Peak on Sunday, January 14th. I grabbed my collection of Colorado maps and studied the Culebra route. What makes the route different from the other peaks I've completed is that there's actually no established trail to the summit. The ascent from the starting point at the ranch is simply a free route. It is kept this way to help reduce trail erosion and impact as people that summit will all likely pick slightly different lines up the mountain. 
In my case, and with snow on the mountain, this was a moot point. The only real question I had was whether or not we'd have to start at the lower trailhead at the ranch, or if we would be dropped off at the upper trailhead by snow machine. On the day of my hike, I left my rental condo in Denver at about 2 a.m. in order to get to the ranch by 6, the required check-in time. This meant a very long drive in the lonely hours of the morning. I made sure that I was accompanied by an extra-large coffee to see me through. I arrived a bit early around 5.15 a.m. and spent about 30 minutes sorting through my gear and making sure I had all the necessary warm layers for any contingency. This would be my first winter mountain ascent. In addition, I carried with me my satellite tracker and communicator for any possible emergencies. I was able to rent a pair of snowshoes from a Denver outfitter for about $20 the day before to help get me up the trail as well. At the check-in, I learned quickly that there would actually be a group of 10 of us hiking up the peak. And not only that, but I also learned that there was an even bigger group that was allowed to summit the previous day, blazing a nice trail for us in the snow. The word from the property manager and from the other hikers was that the snowshoes were not necessary and would likely only hinder our climb. I did learn that we would be starting from the lower trailhead, meaning it would be a very long day, with about 15 miles round trip climbing in the cold and snow. I packed a few hundred extra calories after learning this news and did ultimately leave the snowshoes in the car. I did, however, throw my microspikes in my pack in case of any dangerous ice patches I might encounter along the way. The hike up the approach road in the dark from the lower trailhead was quite long and accompanied by a bitter cold. I wore my winter hiking shoes, though, and they did an adequate job at keeping my feet warm. Incidentally, these are the same shoes I wore when I completed the South Pole Marathon in minus 40 degree temperatures, so I knew that they'd probably be sufficient. Something I had forgotten, though, was that it would be quite some time before the sun would fully rise above the ridge lines. I spent those early morning hours hiking in the dark, and before hitting the first difficult climb on the route, I was really starting to feel the cold temperatures in my bones, despite wearing all of my layers. Thankfully, once I began the icy and steep ascent at around 12,000 feet elevation at mile 5, my heart rate had increased just enough to keep me sufficiently warm. Right as I crested the lower ridge at about 13,200 feet, the sun beamed brightly over the ridge and across the snow. It was at that moment that I realized I had made a monumental mistake. I had forgotten to bring my sunglasses. With the beaming bright sun overhead, copious amounts of snow and ice at my feet, and several miles into the hike, I didn't have many options other than to just deal with it. There would be lots of squinting. The hike from the lower ridge line over to the summit wasn't too difficult, and most of the snow along the ridge had been blown clear. This made for surprisingly easy hiking. There were still a few random patches of ice here and there requiring some level of maintained vigilance. Even with these factors, though, I was amazed at how seamless and with relative ease that I had made progress. I only ended up using my micro spikes on two short sections of exposed ice. I reached the summit about four hours after starting my hike, covering about seven and a half miles. I rested on the summit entirely alone and for quite some time, while also struggling to drink my partially frozen water. 
I wolfed down some much-needed calories as well. I was struck by the beauty and awe of my view. Sitting atop a snow-covered mountain summit is truly an experience like no other. After a 30-minute respite, I eventually began the long trek back down. As expected, the return hike took considerably less time, just under three hours total from summit to car. The entire hike, including all of my breaks, took just a bit over seven hours, putting me back at the car about 2 p.m. Of course, I still had a four-hour drive back to Denver before I could truly call it a success. I did make it back to my rental condo by late evening and slept incredibly well that night. Well, that is until about 3 a.m. when I woke up with one of the worst headaches that I've ever had the pleasure of living through. I realized after a few hours that I was suffering from the wonderful experience known as snow blindness. With all of my deployments to Antarctica and my 700 plus miles of trekking along the snowy Sierras during my Pacific Crest Trail through hike, I still failed to prepare adequately for the climb up Culebra. I suppose there is a first for everything. Thankfully, within 36 hours, my headaches subsided and my eyes began to function normally again. Given this experience, it goes without saying that it is absolutely critical to always wear sunblock and adequate eye protection. Since completing this climb, I have thought a lot about my experiences on the various other now 53 14,000 foot peaks that I have completed in Colorado. This trek up Culebra was definitely one of my most memorable and with the most vivid images imprinted in my mind. I really found the southern part of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains to be especially unique and full of their own special character. Despite its brevity, I can honestly say that this short trip in January of 2018 will live on as one of my favorite trips to Colorado. Well, maybe excluding the snow blindness part. Thank you everyone for following along. In the next episode, we'll take a deep dive into the concept of spatial superlatives with a particular focus on remote islands, and more specifically, a diminutive rock located in Northern Lake Superior, known as Jesus Rock. Take care, everyone, and be safe.